the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. It's been reported that autism affects approximately 1 in 44 children in the United States, and it impacts all racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups. Today's guest, Holly Robinson Pete's son, RJ, was diagnosed with autism at age 3. Her journey with RJ empowered her to take an active role in advocating for people with autism. In her new book, Charlie Makes a Splash, which she co-wrote with RJ, Holly shares awareness about autism with other kids who have been touched by it in some way. Holly is an actress, singer, and activist. She is known for her roles on 21 Jump Street, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, and For Your Love. She also served as one of the original co-hosts of the CBS daytime show, The Talk. Welcome, Holly. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to join you. So, Holly, you've been doing such important work raising awareness and advocating for children and families that are impacted by autism. And as I said in the introduction, your journey began when your son was three years old. Can you tell us what you were experiencing with RJ at that time that led to his diagnosis? We were experiencing a disconnect with our son, with his twin sister and his typical peers. He wasn't making eye contact. He wasn't speaking and he wasn't really connecting with his friends. There was like a disconnect. And so, you know, being rookie parents, this is our first kids, a set of twins. We started off with two. We really didn't know what was going on and we were very confused. Um, and um, we ended up getting the diagnosis when he was three, but I knew at two that there was something not quite uh, right uh, at the time. Uh, and so it was an interesting journey, but we finally did get the diagnosis at three years old. They always say a mother knows what's really going on. And the one thing that I've heard from some moms that have had a similar diagnosis with their children is that it really was a difficult journey to get that diagnosis. Was that the case for you? Getting the diagnosis was not easy. I ran into patients that sort of just said, no, oh, well, he's a twin boy and boys develop slower than girls. Like I, I kept hearing a lot of excuses for his for his behavior and the way he was processing life. It was disturbing to me. He said, we mamas know we have that mommy gut and it's usually like 99.9% right. And so I just felt a little disenfranchised because I felt like both my husband and my pediatrician and a lot of people just were sort of not seeing. And so when he finally did get to the diagnosis at three, I really have to say I kind of beat myself up because I felt like, wow, that's that's a whole year of intervention that I lost. So I'm always encouraging people that when you feel this, if you're a mom or, or dad or and you feel like this diagnosis is, is something that could be, go, go out and try to get it uh, because the more time and the earlier that you intervene, the better. I recently had a conversation with a mom who, when she was pregnant, she got the news that she was going to deliver a Down syndrome baby. And... You know, when, when we are planning our families, we never think about what could go wrong. And we have all of these expectations for the type of life that we believe our child will live. When you got this news about RJ, what was that like for you? It was a very difficult diagnosis because as new parents, we didn't know 
anything about autism. We didn't have any experience or know anybody or any families that were, you know, that in diagnosis. So for us, it was very jarring. It was a, a swift kick in the gut. And then we were told things our son would never do and be. And it was really difficult, too. It was like, wait a second. You're telling us that our three-year-old is never going to have a meaningful job. He's never going to be able to drive or live on his own. So I just thought that was a really tough way to hear it. And so I'm always telling uh, telling people, families, do not let anybody set expectations for your child. And it's one of the reasons why we wanted to share our story, even though the autism spectrum disorder diagnosis is different for everybody. We all have different experiences. But we felt as we shared our story that it would provide a little bit more hope, and uh, I believe it has, and it's, it's been very gratifying to, to be part of that process. Hearing a story like yours, it absolutely would offer some hope to parents, because like you said, there are so many people that are out there ready to tell you all the negatives, all the things that your child will never be able to do. And I, I can't even imagine what it's like to navigate something like that, because it's hard to hold on to hope when you're being told that constantly. Yeah, it is hard. It's hard to hold on to hope when you don't have resources either. So we had a lot of resources, but we were missing the hope. And so um, one of the reasons why we decided to get into, you know, philanthropy and help others with our Holly Rock Foundation is because, you know, what if you didn't have the resources to get your child the interventions? What then? And so that's part of our, our advocacy for other families. But you're right, it's absolutely very difficult. It's easy to say, stay hopeful, stay up, stay positive. But when you don't have the resources to support what you're being told, if someone tells you early intervention and you can't access that, or as we spoke earlier about a diagnosis, sometimes even getting the diagnosis is so difficult that you, you, know, you lose that time in there. So a lot of things that are at play when it comes to getting the diagnosis and when it comes to helping these parents uh, process the autism diagnosis. Holly, you've been navigating this journey for many years. What changes have you seen, good or bad? Oh, well, I, the biggest change I've seen is the shift from autism awareness to autism acceptance, which is awesome. Like, that is great, because even when we wrote um, our first children's book, My Brother Charlie, back in um, about 12 years ago, the goal was to get autism awareness to make people and to young kids, children aware of what autism was, so they would become more accepting, uh, accepting of what autism is. But then doing this new book, My Charlie Makes a Splash, we wanted to bring RJ's voice in and make and really focus more on autism acceptance and autism love. Um, and so that's the biggest change I've seen in the narrative. I've also seen a lot of change in um, the way that people with autism self-identify. So you know, when we diagnosed it was a lot of, you know, a child has autism and it's child first language. And there's a large movement of people who are like my son's age who identify as autistic people and they want to be accepted that way. So I think that's a big change that I've seen as well. In your book, Charlie shows the world that he has autism, but autism doesn't have him. What does that mean? It means for RJ and for his alter ego, Charlie, means that it's not everything. It doesn't. It's not who he is. It's a part of him. And, you know, getting back to some of the, you know, the sort of actually autistic groups out there on social media, like they really have embraced you know, being autistic. For RJ, and I do think it, that self-identity is a preference, he likes to call himself with autism. It's part of who he is. It's not something that is all of him. So when he said it doesn't have me, it's just, and he really means that it's not going to hold him back from realizing things in his life that he wants to do. You said earlier, Holly, that you got involved doing this work because you wanted to offer hope and help other people. How has sharing your story helped you and your family? Well, when we first got the diagnosis, there was a lot of confusion, hurt, you know, guilt, and conversations about, you know, just processing this diagnosis and, and disappointment. Like, you know, you, you mourn. You mourn, you know, what you thought your child was going to be. And so you really do go through it. Um, and then as we started to accept it more, um, as my husband started to sort of process his denial and move off of that, 
We knew we should share our story to help raise awareness and make autism families feel less alone and more seen and normalized. So um, that was part of the goal. But I will say this, when we started processing whether or not we wanted to talk about it publicly, um, there was a little bit of pushback, especially from my husband who didn't want his son to be the poster child for autism. But now I look up and he's almost 25 and, you know, he's been such an amazing light for so many people. When I see the reaction of meeting RJ from some of these autism families, he, you know, it's a, it's a little rock star. Like, it's just, and you know, he's just the most innocent kid. He does, he, he has no real clear view of how much he's impacted the autism world and his advocacy and sharing his story. But it really has changed the world in a lot of ways. And I, you know, I, I famously always say I wouldn't change RJ for the world because he's this amazing, quirky, fun, different kind of guy who swims to his own rhythm. Um, but I would try to change the world for RJ. I would try to make this world an easier place for him to process life. Tell us a little bit more about RJ. What is his life like now? RJ's life is pretty amazing. Um, when he was three, we were told he would never have meaningful employment. And now he has his dream job. He works as a, a clubhouse attendant for the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team, you know, the number one baseball team in the whole MLB. And uh, he has been nothing short of a blessing and a wrapped inside a miracle, wrapped inside a dream. Like, I could just stop thinking about this team that hired him when he was 18, gave him his first job, and he will never not be a Dodger. He's in his seventh season. Um, you know, it, it, not to be funny, but like people with autism, they have a particular set of skills and what his skills and being able to memorize things and understand numbers in a different way uh, really works well in the baseball world. Um, and so every time, you know, it's like Autism Awareness Month or something, or I'll put out like a tweet or post saying, thank you, Los Angeles Dodgers. Oh my goodness. RJ has a world series ring. Oh my gosh. I thank them. And I thank the players because this is the first time he really has had a community of friends in his entire life. And they love him. They accept him for who he is. They love how different he is. That's what makes him so special. And they're always telling me, stop thanking us. We should be thanking you because he brings such joy and light and, and positivity to the clubhouse. And um, it's just an absolute dream that he has this job. And at Hollywood Foundation, we have job fairs because we know that people with autism people on the spectrum can bring their gifts to a workplace. It's just about hiring inclusively and understanding that. And more and more um, corporations are understanding the power of hiring inclusively, which is great. Holly, tell us more about Hollyrod Foundation and how can we help? Well, Hollyrod Foundation was founded because my father had Parkinson's disease. He was an amazing man, just a fantastic man. And was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at 46, pretty young. That's young onset Parkinson's. And we started Holly Ride because we wanted to help families impacted by Parkinson's with compassionate care. Um, When we got the diagnosis of autism later on, when RJ was born and then um, sort of regressed into autism, we knew we had to support those families. And so we do, along with job fairs and job training, we also provide... um, pads and and tablets. We support families with caregiving and um, spousal support, sibling support. So we're really all about helping the family comprehensively. And how can we help you? Well, you know, donations are always amazing at hollyrod.org. But I always tell people that the way to really support and donate and give back is your time and your compassion. So if you can't cut a check, then, you know, find a family in your neighborhood that's impacted by autism or at your church or in your community and help them. Ask them if they need anything. Sometimes it might be as simple as, you know, um, babysitting the other siblings or giving the mom or dad a night out um, and giving a caregiver some respite. So I'm always encouraging people. Of course, I love donations for Holly Rod. Those are key and they keep us going. But it's also important just to be compassionate to autism families in your own community.
Holly, from all that you've learned over the years, what is the best advice that you can offer to parents of an autistic child? I would say the best advice, well, first of all, I would say that if you are getting the diagnosis today or recently, good news is that you have so many resources and, and ways to roll up your sleeves and get your child the help and intervention that they so desperately need. There are some great organizations out there. You know, East Seals is one. A lot of people don't realize how much Easter Seals does in the autism community. So just exhaust your resources, build a team around your son or daughter, and make sure that they that you spend time with your siblings as well, with your other with the other children. Give them one on one time so that they feel connected to you outside of their affected sibling. Uh, it's a big job, but uh, you can do it. And there are so many resources. And um, and I would say shamelessly that Charlie makes a splash with a great book. If you're if you have a are a family of a young child who is headed who is in school and you would like your child's class to understand what autism is, um, and also there's great resources in the back of Charlie makes a splash. Please get this book. And once again, that book is Charlie Makes a Splash. Holly, where can our listeners go to get more information about you, the foundation, and your work? You can go to hollyrod.org to find out more about what Hollyrod Foundation does. And um, I'm everywhere on social media at HollyRP. I love it when people chime in. I read all my mentions and love to hear about the book, how it impacted you, or if it changed you, or if you have any suggestions. Or, you know, I'm very, I love connecting with people. I think social media is so good in that way that it can connect us all directly and um, I'd love to hear from you. Holly, thank you so much for joining us. As I said, you are doing such important work and I'm really honored that you were able to spend this time with us to help our listeners. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. I'm so glad to talk to you. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. As adults, we tend to lose perspective on failure. We forget how many times as children we failed to tie our shoes before we succeeded. We forget how many times we fell before we learned to walk, skate, ski, or ride a bike. When you stop failing, you stop learning, and then you stop growing. If you struggle with fear of failure, examine the root cause of your struggle. Is there an issue of pride? Are you afraid of what others might think if you fail? Were you criticized as a child when you made mistakes that as an adult, you're afraid to take risks? Understanding the source of your fear will help you overcome it. Fear of rejection and fear of criticism detour many of us from our journeys to success. Rather than face possible rejection, some people simply don't ask for what they need. Rather than face possible criticism, they conceal their true abilities and never display their full potential. Every successful salesperson must ask for the order. Every successful business owner has to secure financing. In order to attain our dreams and goals, no matter what they are, we must invariably ask others for their support, participation, assistance, or commitment. And every time we ask, we face the possibility of rejection. If you struggle with the fear of rejection, examine its source. Knock at the door. You never know what's on the other side to success. If you'd like to learn more, contact me, Bertha Robinson, at 732-705-5060 or visit star1professional.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. 
As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. It's easy to feel overwhelmed and underprepared when it comes to taking care of your health. But according to our next guest, Casey Guerin, despite what the wellness industry told you, you don't need another cleanse, detox, or supplement. You need a crash course in separating hype from health. Casey is a former executive editor and health director at Self Magazine. She is the author of the book, It's Probably Nothing, The Stressless Guide to Dealing with Health Anxiety, Wellness Fads, and Overhyped Headlines. Welcome, Casey. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Casey, many people are anxious about their health, particularly now, and they find it challenging navigating all of the information that's available. It's really easy to become a Google doctor. And, you know, I laugh when I say that because I remember years ago when I was doing medical editing, no matter what medical document I would edit, I always had the symptoms of that disease. So it gets really easy (laughs) to fall into that trap, as I'm sure you can attest to. I'm sure you've done the same thing. So... How do you think we can go about maintaining good health without becoming that hypochondriac? I can definitely relate to what you experienced. <laughs> I have been anxious about my health and been that person who Googles their symptoms and assumes the worst um, my whole life. And then I ironically became a health editor. And um, yes, it didn't go away. I also, you know, I would edit something and be like, yes, I have that. I definitely have that. Um, But as a health reporter, you know, we learn to ask certain questions and dig through the research and the medical jargon. And you learn how to distinguish between legitimate sources and ones that aren't and debunking those bogus wellness trends. And I realized that those are the tools that could really help the average person to just navigate all of this health information and misinformation that's out there. So I think it starts with you know doing a lot of the same tools and tricks that a health reporter uses when they're you know churning through all of this information. We get so much information from different sources, some reputable, some not so reputable. So how can we go about fine-tuning our BS detector? How can we separate the hype from the health? Yeah, so I think that a really important part is to look for the primary sources. You know, we, we learn about primary and secondary sources back in elementary school, and I think it's something a lot of us seem to forget. Um, but you want to always look for, you know, where does that statistic come from? Where does that fact come from? And that can be really hard when you're just on Facebook and seeing, you know, a stat in a shareable graphic or in a meme. Um, But you want to look for that primary source, you know, whether it is peer-reviewed research or a doctor, because you want to get more context around what you're what you're looking at. Um, and so much so often we don't have that context or we see a headline like tequila helps you lose weight. <laughs> and that's not really what the study said. So I think when it comes to you know, knowing if something that you're reading online or seeing online is legitimate or not, it is doing a little bit of research. And a lot of that starts with kind of playing that game of telephone, you know, going back as far as you can and finding where does this information come from? And you just mentioned weight loss, and that is really an area that we can drive ourselves crazy researching. You know, one day you hear, do this, don't do that. Like you said, drink tequila, don't drink tequila. Although if we had tequila, (laughs) we wouldn't be quite as worried about it. But, um, you know, it's something that we do drive ourselves crazy with. In in particular, I think as women, because we have this notion that we have to look and and be this particular, um, you know, body size and shape. And so, I think that also helps us to follow a lot of the misinformation because we're striving for something that is often unattainable. So when it comes to diet and nutrition, what are some of the things that you've learned all of these years working at self? Well, you're right. There's so much conflicting 
reports out there. And it does seem like if you searched the same, you know, weight loss or nutrition tip, you would find every other year that it goes back and forth. (laughs) And so I think that we should just be really aware of these messages that we are getting from these wellness brands um, and, you know, the, the predatory wellness products and supplements that are promising to help you lose all this weight and and just look at is there any evidence for this is there peer-reviewed research to back this up Um, and if not is this even a trusted source on this is this just a, a random celebrity or is it someone who has dedicated their career to studying metabolic health and, and weight loss um, so again finding those trusted sources and that can be a nutritionist that you see personally someone that whose opinion you respect and having that sounding board can be really helpful when you're getting tons of conflicting messages in the media because yeah you're right we are often getting uh, the message that there's something wrong or off with our body, that we need to be optimizing our health and weight in different ways, and it can really get to you. Do you think that it's important that we learn to listen to our body? I do, but I do think that sometimes we throw around that phrase, just listen to your body, um, without realizing that some of us do that a lot already. <laughs> so for some of us who are those symptom searchers, are the people that, you know, we read something and we assume, oh, I definitely have that. Um, what I learned from the experts when I was researching this book is that often that health anxiety does stem from paying too much attention to your body and really being almost too in tune with your body and your symptoms. And so when you tell someone, oh, just, you know, you know your body best, um, that's not always the case. Some of us uh, can't stop listening to our bodies. And so I think it's there's a fine line there, I think, uh, Listening to your body and and trusting yourself is one aspect, but also knowing when sometimes your body just kind of messes with you, uh, like having a panic attack. Well, that's the thing, because sometimes you don't know if you are actually creating the symptoms in your body because the mind is very powerful. Exactly. And we know that when we do stress out about a particular symptom, um, and again, that can be, you know, a physical symptom that's not necessarily medical Uh, or pathological in nature, we can make it seem, you know, louder and more salient because we are paying more attention to it. And if you do end up getting stressed out about it, very anxious, and you trigger that kind of fight or flight response um, that we know is involved in a panic attack, that can come with even more symptoms, real physical symptoms that you might attribute to, you know, I'm having a heart attack or I'm dying. Um, but your mind is very powerful, like you said. So it can be really hard. And the experts that I talked to for this book did emphasize, you know, if you were worried about something, of course, seek medical attention. If it's something that now this is becoming a pattern and you are realizing that you're elevating these symptoms in a way um, that they can't necessarily find a physical cause, you might want to also seek mental health support because it could be something that, you know, if you're just going to doctors, you're not necessarily getting the support that you need. Casey, what are a few of the best online resources for good health information? Oh, great question. Well, of course, um, any health reporter is going to tell you and recommend major medical organizations like the CDC, the World Health Organization, any of uh, the National Health Health Institute's websites. And of course, you know, those can be very jargony and not necessarily something that you want to read every day over breakfast. So if there are other brands, whether they're wellness brands or news organizations that you like to follow, just look into, you know, do they have a track record of reporting on health responsibly? Do they have, you know, dedicated, trained health reporters? Are they transparent about their research and fact-checking process? And this is stuff that you can, you know, just kind of look around on their website, usually scrolling all the way to the bottom and seeing, you know, their their mission statement and um, a little bit more of, of their process. And if that's something that you think, yes, okay, they know how to report on health in a responsible way, I trust where they're getting, where they're including their sources, then I think that's a perfectly fine place to get your health information. It doesn't always have to just be the CDC. Um, but if you are finding that, uh, you know, it's a website that's just telling you like, 
10 surprising, you know, subtle signs of cancer or the tequila helps you lose weight example, things like that, that might not be the best place to be getting your health advice. The book is It's Probably Nothing, The Stressless Guide to Dealing with Health Anxiety, Wellness Fads, and Overhyped Headlines. Casey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. If you've experienced a trauma, you may be left wondering why it happened and how you can heal. According to today's guest, Sherry Trask, you were a victim the moment it happened, but you don't have to remain a victim any longer. Sherry was sexually assaulted at age 19. Afterward, she spent nearly a decade in a long, silent struggle, holed up in hospital rooms with a variety of unexplained illnesses. Sherry finally found the courage to go inward and healed. Sherry is a ghostwriter and nonfiction book writing coach. She is the author of the book, Surviving Silence, A Healing Path to Living Out Loud After Trauma. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, Sherry, let's start off by talking a little bit about your story. What happened to you when you were 19 years old? Yeah, so when I was 19, I had reluctantly said yes to going out with somebody who I felt in my gut was just not going to be a good decision. Um, But honestly, as a 19-year-old, I just wanted to get him off my back. And so I said yes, and that turned into the most pivotal moment of my life. Uh, We were supposed to go to a movie that night, and he asked that I meet him at his house to go, and I met him there. As I got to his front door, he asked me to come in and pick out a jacket because I would probably get cold at the movie theater. And when I told him, you know, go ahead and just pick something out for me, it doesn't really matter to me. He's like, oh, no, 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 come in. Come into my bedroom and, and grab one. And everything in my body told me no. Yet there was a piece of me that was just like, just get it over with, move on and go to the movie and this can all be over with. So as soon as I walked through his bedroom door, he grabbed me and he proceeded to rape me from there. He threw me on the bed. He ripped my shirt open. He pulled down my pants. I was pleading with him to stop. And when that didn't happen, you know, all of my senses took over and I blacked out. And I remember small pieces of that moment, like the way it felt. I remember the smell of his aftershave. I remember the scrap of his face on my neck. And when he was finished, he got up and I had tears streaked down my face. And he was like, see, baby, I told you you'd like it. He walked out. And in that moment, I just felt my entire world collapse around me. I fell to the floor from the bed. I like scooched down, fell to the floor and crawled to the adjacent bathroom and I looked in the mirror and the person I saw was not the person that had walked in that door. This was a new person. This was a stranger. It was someone who I felt terrified to get to know. Um, And that moment really did change my entire world in so many ways. I from there, walked through, back through the bedroom, through the living room and out to my car, didn't say a word. And I cried in my car and it was raining, which doesn't really happen so much where I live in San Diego. It was October 15th and 2000. And I started praying and I was asking, you know, whatever, 
whatever the reason is that this happened, please help me to see the purpose in it so that I can forgive this person and I can be free. And I made a decision at that moment that I would not leave that parking spot until I was able to forgive the man who had just assaulted me. And I know for a lot of survivors, that's usually the last step if it ever happens. But for me, I really felt like I needed that peace in order to have my own freedom and take my power back. And so I'm not sure how long I sat there, but I can say with confidence that I was able to forgive him that night. And the real forgiveness would be the journey of forgiving myself for staying silent for so long afterwards. Well, so Sherry, when that was over, was part of that process for you to almost just push this aside and pretend it never happened? Or did you try to press charges? No, I didn't do anything. I I stayed completely silent for three and a half years before I told the first person. Um, And I didn't mean to tell that person. It just kind of came out. And it was in that moment that I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't take this back. So what do I do with it? And that's when I started speaking openly about it. Why do you think you were silent about it? Did you want to pretend it didn't happen? No, for me, the silence really came more so from not wanting to be seen as different. You know, I just wanted to continue living my life. I didn't want to have to deal with this huge, which for me felt like a huge thing. I just didn't feel like I had the capacity. I didn't I didn't want to, quite frankly, deal with it. I wanted to just move forward and so that I could be this normal person who had everything together, who was going to college and, and nobody had to know. Do you think a lot of sexual assault victims feel the same way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been speaking publicly about this now since, gosh, it's been about 20 years almost. And I can't tell you how many people I've had come up to me after talks that I've done. And some of them have told me as the first person for the first time in all of these years. And the story continues to be the same. It's like, I haven't told anybody because I don't want anyone to know because I don't want to be seen as different. I don't Mm -hmm. want pity. I don't want to be a victim. I don't want all these things that so many people, you know, kind hearted people that mean nothing but good things by it um, tend to label us as as different and we're already on ourselves we're already labeling ourselves in some way or another and we don't want that oftentimes you know you're right because no matter what we experience in life we're always so quick to blame ourselves for it and and you know so anything let's say you have an argument with a friend you think to yourself well what did i do wrong or what did i do that's like the question we always ask ourselves and so when you're talking about a sexual assault i can almost you know imagine the gamut of things that went through your mind that you blamed yourself for. You know, it's interesting. I totally hear you. And for most people, I would say that that's true. Um, my experience actually wasn't so much of blame. I didn't, I didn't feel this blame or shame or anything like that. It was more so about like, can I just pretend like this didn't happen and move on with my life? It was, it was like an inconvenience to me mm-hmm. almost. And so I think for me, the more that I allowed myself this space to really dive into it, I was able to uncover the pieces that were connected to like my, my childhood and how I was holding these stories and all of these things. Because with this assault also, that I didn't mention, is it resulted in an ectopic pregnancy. And I didn't know if I ever wanted kids. And so when that happened, I was like, oh, my gosh, now I have to deal with this other layer. Nobody can know this. I don't want anyone knowing what happened. Because, again, I was that person that people looked at like, oh, my gosh, she has everything going for her. And I didn't want any other stigma attached to myself. So you talked about staying silent for all of these years, which then resulted in a host of unexplained illnesses. What were you experiencing in those years that followed? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I was 19 when this happened, and I spent nine years of my 20s in the hospital, and it was essentially with things that the doctors were baffled by. Um, I would come in with rashes all over my entire body. There was a moment where um, I was about 20, I think it was 21, 21, 22, and um, I was modeling at trade shows, and I woke up one morning and I physically couldn't move. My hands were stuck. My feet were stuck. I had to crawl on my elbows and my knees to my roommate and say, like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I have to go to the doctor. Like, something's going on. And I had, like, this massive swelling in my body, so inflammation. And, and I now see it as, like, our, story, our stories keep us sick, stuck, and sad. Mm-hmm. And unless we allow space for these things to 
you know, be released from us, however that needs to happen, they'll show up and manifest in different ways. And for me, it was physical ailments. And it really was everything that you can imagine. I mean, I had ruptured ovarian cysts. I had a kidney infection so bad that I was hospitalized for nearly two weeks. And my mom was living in Seattle and they called her and said, you know, we think you should come. We're not sure she's going to make it. And I'm her only child. And so, of course, as a mother, whether it's an only child or not, it's like, oh, my God, my child, what's happening? So these things were constantly showing up. And I was frustrated as heck because I didn't understand why at the time those things were happening. So that led me down a whole path of going back to school to study holistic health to figure it out. Yeah, because that's what will happen, Cherry, when when there are things that you don't deal with Mm -hmm. or you stay silent or you try to stuff down. Your body has a way of then Mm -hmm. creating dis-ease. And, and of course, these Mm -hmm. types of things would happen. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So what is it that you want to say to other trauma survivors so that they know they can take that first step for healing? You know, when you're in that situation... You tend to think that you're all alone and there's really nothing you can do. So what type of encouragement do you want to offer them? Yeah, you know, I would I would honestly say that one of the biggest things that I did for myself that gave me the capacity to heal, and I, let me put a caveat on there, is I think healing is a continuous process. So I think there are layers. It's just dependent on how deep you want to go. But I will say that one of the most healing the best and most healing practices that I used and I've used with my clients is to allow yourself to mourn the version of you that existed before the trauma occurred. And then from there, get to know the version of you that is asking to be born right now, because it's so easy for us to get stuck in the story of our past, but we cannot be who we were before that happened. And that doesn't make us bad, wrong, or broken. It simply makes us a new version. And that can be even more beautiful than the one that existed prior to. Sure. Do you believe that there are blessings in our struggles? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And did that mindset shift of finally realizing that, did that help you on your healing journey? Yes, absolutely. It's a philosophy I was raised with. And so it's blessed in that way. Yeah, because a lot of people tend to think that things happen to them and then they become stuck. Mm-hmm. And when you when you mm-hmm. have that mindset that all of these horrible things are, are holding you down and keeping you a victim and, and, you know, happening to your detriment, it's very difficult to dig yourself out of those situations. Yes, absolutely. I think one of the things that I find so important, especially around rape itself, is that the fact is we don't move on from rape but we can move forward with it. And it's up to us to figure out how to do that with the support of other people that can hold our stories with care. What do you hope to accomplish with your book, Surviving Silence? Uh, My deepest wish is that it will impact survivors and their loved ones in a positive way, in a way that they can feel safe to express their experiences from a place of self-compassion and self-love and knowing that they are they are merely a new version of themselves that is just incredible and healing is possible for anybody. And once again, that book is Surviving Silence, A Healing Path to Living Out Loud After Trauma. If you'd like to learn more about Sherry and her work, you can visit SherryTrask.com and that's S-H-E-R-E-E, SherryTrask.com. Sherry, thank you so much for spending this time with us and for being so generous and open about your story. When a person hears something like you've gone through and where you are today, it offers so much hope. So I'm so happy that you were here to be with us and to just share all that you've experienced. Thank you for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done, and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. 
productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Allison Carmen, a business consultant, life coach, and author of The Gift of Maybe, offering hope and possibility in uncertain times. Allison's podcast, 10 Minutes to Less Suffering, provides simple tools to reduce daily stress and worry. Allison's new book is A Year Without Men. Welcome, Allison. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Joan. So, Allison, as the new year begins, many of us set goals and intentions, and no matter how hard we may try, we end up experiencing some unexpected turns. Things that we didn't think would happen end up happening. So how can we keep from getting too caught up in the disappointment when things don't go the way that we planned? That's a great question, Joan. The the interesting thing about disappointment is, of course, we have the right to feel what we want to feel. But after a while, disappointment becomes the story of how we thought our life was going to happen or how we thought outside events were going to happen. And sometimes what we do is we look at the unexpected and because we get so disappointed, it starts to sink us. And we start to believe that our things that we want are not possible or we let those low emotions get the best of us or we let the fear get the best of us. And when that starts to happen, instead of finding a new way to be out in the world, what we do is we kind of stop trying. And sometimes the fatigue and the disappointment kind of get to us in a, in a, in a way that we forget that we are the generator of our own light. We are the ones that manifest in our lives. So we have to be careful because what disappointment does, it pushes us so far out of ourselves that we start to let what happens outside of us dictate how we feel inside. And really, though, how we feel inside is really going to be the reason whether or not we create, the whether, whether or not we manifest, whether or not we find another way to get there. That's another thing, too. It's like disappointment is sometimes just a roadblock, but there are other ways to get there. And we forget that because the disappointment kind of makes us feel that we can't have the life that we want. Well, so much of your work is around teaching us to embrace uncertainty. And, and you just touched upon fear. And, you know, when you were saying what so many of us are experiencing today, fear is really making us feel like everything is outside of our control. So what can we do when everything feels that way? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think the best thing that we could do is we could start by looking at what we want in our lives. I mean, the most important thing for all of us is to have a meaningful life. So I think that, you know, we have to be careful. We have to, we should set our goals for the year, of course. You know, what are our dreams? What do we want to achieve? And then we need to look at what our intentions are and, and what actions we can take. And then, yeah, that, there's that moment that, you know, we have our goals, we have our intentions, and then life gives us something different. And that's when the fear kicks in. That's when we start to believe I can't have what I want. I'm afraid things can't get better. I don't know how the situation is going to work out. So what I do is that I take this third step and I actually do it practically every week. It's not every day. You know, I ask myself what my fears are. And sometimes, you know, a lot of people's fears today is the pandemic will never end or I'll never get the job I want or I'll never have the relationship that I want. And just that fear knocks us down. So we don't even try to take action steps and we give up on our goals. But when you look at your fears, what's so interesting about your fears is they're not absolute. If you say to yourself, am I absolutely certain that fear is true? You can't be certain of anything. And that's what's such a beautiful moment is that you question your fears. You Fears are uncertain. And then when you start to recognize that your fears are uncertain, you get to kind of turn it around. And, and I know I talk about this a lot on your show, but then you look at the maybe. Because what we forget is that uncertainty brings good things, too. And maybe is the hope within the unknown. And what I do is I say these maybe statements. Maybe things will get better. Maybe things will change. Maybe there are many ways to be okay. That's a beautiful maybe statement for the new year because it, it unhooks you from that fear. And it reminds you that you're not stuck and you're not doomed. And things will always keep changing. We don't, you know, we're so, like, when something bad happens, we get so fixated on it, we forget, again, that uncertainty brings good things, too. So set your goals, look at your intentions, but also question your fears and incorporate that beautiful idea of maybe into your life because you never know what's going to happen next. But that's a good thing. And also, you know, keep the light within. Know that you are the generator every day. Try to keep letting go of that disappointment. Because disappointment is just a story about how we thought our life would be. And when we open up to what life, what's happening in the moment, 
and we open up to more possibilities and we open up to the fact that the unknown brings good things, life starts to change. And over time, we will move closer to our goals. And the unexpected won't affect us that much because we know that we're the one that creates in our lives more than anything. Allison, in addition to staying in maybe, is there an exercise or a strategy you can share with us that can help us stay focused? Well, I think the goals and the intentions and the maybe, I think that's a beautiful daily practice. But I also think, you know, I know a lot of people talk about gratitude as well, but I think what happens too when we get disappointed, we start focusing, hyper-focusing on what didn't happen. It's like there could be one major disappointment in our life, and then we forget that we still have a lot of resources. We still have loved ones. We still have friends. We often still have money in the bank. We still have time. So what gratitude does, it reminds you that you still have things to work with. Because sometimes disappointment makes you feel such deep lack that you fall into despair. And again, despair is just our need for certainty, our need to know this is what's going to happen. But we forget that so many beautiful things could happen. So I think a gratitude practice as well will keep reminding you that you still have resources and you still have things left. And, you know, what's so interesting is that disappointment is not... not solid and it doesn't take away our potential we forget that we always have potential and and potential does not change from life events it doesn't change from when you don't when you're not happy when something happens you just have to remember that good things are still possible and what you want is still possible because what you desire desires you so again set your goals your intentions use those maybe statements to quiet the fears and use the gratitude practice to find those resources. And again, the light is from within and we are the creators. And the more we kind of keep letting go and opening up the creativity within us and the power within us and the uniqueness within us will shine through and eventually we will find our way. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic, you can visit alisoncarmen.com or as always to hear more from Allison, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Allison. We cure 80% of children with cancer. Go back 50 years, we were curing 20 to 30%. This is the miracle story of modern medicine. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.